So glad you could stop by and check out the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast today. Hey, it's May. Open water season is here. Fishing season is here for all the anglers that like to go to the Boundary Waters region. And support for today's episode of the podcast comes from the Ely Outfitting Company. Hi, my name is Wes, and I like Ely Outfitting Company because uh, Jason will make sure that you have the ultimate Boundary Waters experience. He's going to think through all the details for you, and you're going to come away with a better understanding of what makes Minnesota such a special place to all of us. And uh, the staff at Ely Outfitting Company are just the best. They'll greet you like a friend and make sure that you have a great experience. I support the Ely Outfitting Company and this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experience were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Come the northern lights Oh, and in the deep dark blue Come the northern lights Welcome to episode 17 of the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I'm here with co-host Joe Fredericks. Hey, and I'm here with co-host Matthew Baxley. Happy to be here with you, Joe. It's been a really exciting month since last we aired uh midwest mountaineering outdoor adventure expo man what a crowd we have been on the go this spring here of both at canoe copia in madison in march and now in april we were down at the expo in minneapolis midwest mountaineering as you said and the connections we've made at these events matthew have been phenomenal both the people who knew about the podcast people who we introduced to the podcast Everybody who we met, greetings, first of all. <laughs> great, to, great to talk with you again. It, yeah, to all of you that stopped by the booth and thanked us for what we're doing on the podcast, shared your encouragement uh, and your gratitude for what we're doing. I mean, that was just fuel for our fire. I, I feel so connected to so many listeners. That FaceTime, you know, that FaceTime you talked about last episode where you can look in somebody's eyes and you, you feel what, where they're at, that happened. It did on so many occasions, and seriously, thank you for stopping by, and just as much or more so, thank you for listening to the podcast. It means so much to know that you're out there listening, and this is just, we're having so much fun, this is unbelievable. Indeed, you know, and The shoulder season uh, between winter and summer is a challenging time for everybody, I think. Uh, You know, it's dreary, it's muddy, it's rainy, and even, you know, sometimes snowy. And it's hard to get through that, you know, with paddling on the mines and dreaming about the boundary waters. I I think the way we got through it, connecting with these folks, was amazing. 
And and thankfully so, because they may never see you again. Well, that's because uh, the open water season is now upon us. It's May, uh, middle of May here, and the lakes, we hope, most of them are already nearing to be open and will be open, you know, for the fishing opener. Then after that, it's Memorial Day weekend. Like, things are now rolling. I mean, there's a couple weeks there between the opener and Memorial Day, but that actually happens to be one of my favorite times up here. The fishing's extraordinary. Uh, wildlife's coming out. It, this is... It's on. It's on, Matthew. Joe, what are you most excited about? Fishing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fishing. What are you going to be uh, throwing your fishing line at? Well, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about that actually here on the episode today. I'm really glad that you brought it up. Uh, we're going to hear from a gentleman uh, down in Duluth that you had the opportunity to talk with. Matthew, uh, tell me a little bit about this conversation. I'm pumped to, to get in on this. Well, Jeremy Kershaw uh, hails... Uh, presently from Duluth, we're going to hear all about him, uh, and he has got a lot of interesting info to share about a unique form of fishing, that is fly fishing, uh, rarely talked about in the Boundary Waters, but very, very fascinating. A small window of time to get out and enjoy it, but it really, I mean, after talking to Jeremy, I cannot wait to learn that special cast. Absolutely. Jeremy is a, a- big cyclist here in northeastern minnesota uh, and it was awesome uh, that you were able to connect with him and talk fishing fly fishing with him so that's the focus of uh, the second part of the episode and up first though we're going to hear uh from two people affiliated with camp birchwood for boys down at the end of the gunflint trail uh victor pilon and ashley bredemus and they are both highly affiliated with the camp so that opened up this whole door for us matthew talk about camps the role of camps introducing people to the Boundary Waters. I mean, just like our family episode where we kind of, it just started rolling, all these connections that we made through that family episode. Now we're going to go into camps and how that gets people introduced to the Boundary Waters. It's it's just an amazing avenue, an outlet that keeps people going. At it. it starts them at a young age, and what we're finding is people then continue to go for the rest of their lives. Exactly. You know, and everybody has, like we talked about last month, everybody has their route to discovering paddle country and you know the the amount of work that these camps do you know m- mostly nonprofits are dedicating all of their functioning to introducing young people to the wilderness and it's amazing how many you know adult paddlers got their start that way and I want to highlight if you remember back to episode 14 Rachel Nethercut you know, epic story. How of, could anyone forget episode 14? Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and I mean, Rachel got her start at a camp and, you know, moved on from a camper to a guide. Uh, and now her life is guiding and she continues to return to the Boundary Waters as much as possible. Yeah. So we're going to hear uh, from Victor and Ashley here coming up in just a moment. But, you know, since you brought it up and everything, Matthew, fishing. I, uh, I did mention that, didn't I? <laughs> Um, you know, it really is an incredible time up here that first couple weeks in the Boundary Waters. Uh, you can get lake trout. You know, they're in shallower. It's a good window there to get some lake trout. Uh, I'll be fishing walleye and lake trout, maybe brook trout on the opener this year. I'm looking forward to that. But first things first, let's talk about camps. Let's uh, dive right into our conversation here. And uh, just excited to be back in the spring here matthew Woo! and we here we go it's may uh let's talk uh boundary waters
And joining us now here on the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast are Ashley Bredemus and Victor Pilon. Thank you both so much for stopping by WTIP and joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said here uh, during the intro, we're talking about uh, camps that are near the Boundary Waters, up the Gunflint Trail, near Ely, all around the Boundary Waters region. There are camps uh, really trying to get youth involved in what the Boundary Waters is all about and not just learning it uh, at the camp itself, but actually getting into the wilderness. That's a big part of it, as we'll uh, find out in our discussion here. And so a little bit of background on um, the both of you. Ashley, you have a very uh, storied connection to the Boundary Waters region. Your grandfather uh, is the founder of the Camp Birchwood for Boys camp. That's uh, on the Seagull River. He also founded the uh, Camp Birchwood for Girls. It's in another part of the state, but uh, we're talking uh, mostly about the Boundary Waters and, the, and Birchwood for Boys. Uh, tell me about that. What role that has played in your life? I mean, I know yeah. now you're you're actually living up there this winter in yeah. uh, the winter of 2018-2019 here. So tell me a little bit about your connection to the camp and, yeah. and the Boundary Waters. Yeah, well, the camp is my family business. So my grandfather, Jim, started it in 1968, um, and it's kind of been in the family. My uncle, Terry, runs it now. Um, but it's been a huge part of my life. I've spent a lot of summers up there building different things like a big water slide and a big tree swing and um, a bunch of really cool stuff. And recently I've moved up there. This is my first winter living there. Um, I've gone on lots of trips through there and through Ely, but, um, yeah, I, I'm just really excited to be a part of the boys camp now in a bigger way. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I want to hear, uh, some more about the, what it's like living up there this winter, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah so, uh, first of all, Victor, you also have a, a connection to the camp. You've been a, a, a director there for a number of years. You've done some guiding through Birchwood. And so tell me a little bit of how you, you know, found out about it and, and your connection to the camp and, and the Boundary Waters. Uh, one of my best friends, Frank, uh, goes to UMG with me. Uh, he was a director the previous year and he was like, Hey, I've got a great job opportunity for you. Uh, would you want to be a guide for me this summer? And I was like, sure, I've got nothing going on. I love the Boundary Waters. I love working with kids. Uh, it's kind of my calling. So I was like, why not combine the both and uh, have a great summer and a great career and a great job? Yeah, and that was what, a few years ago? Yeah, that was three years ago. Okay, and so you've been actually now coming back to the camp and, and uh, this role as a director for a number of years too. What are you doing up there? Uh, so as far as my job title, I'm like, I'm doing like pack out. So I'm like the guy who gets all the gear and fixing gear. And I, uh, I also do all the meal planning on trips. So uh, the guides will come to me with their meals and I'll get all their meals together and I'll give it and give it to them and they throw that out on trail for the kids. I'm also um, in charge of like activities, like in-camp activities. So like I'm doing like riflery and archery and that kind of basic stuff. But I'm also doing some of the trip activities too. So I'm like, I'm giving um, some of the guides ideas to do on trail like canoe wars or like mm -hmm. having the kids do orienteering on trails, kind of that basic stuff. So getting the kids interested. Yeah, man. Nice. Right on. So let's talk a little bit about the camps. I mean, uh, when we think of a camp near the boundary waters, you know, the idea would be canoeing or in the winter, maybe, you know, some, some winter camping type activities, but what's a typical summer day at, at Birchwood Victor? Like, uh, the, what are the ages of the kids around the camp and, and what are they doing there? Uh, so we have ages from, I'd say six to 16 is usually where we, our kids fall into. Um, and we have probably five or six different cabins. Those cabins are kind of separated by age. And so kids are kind of around their own age groups. Um, and wake up bells at eight o'clock. So that's when breakfast is. And we kind of plan our days around activities, uh, and dinner and lunch and that kind of fun stuff. And then, uh, later in the week, we'll send kids on trail. And so camp's kind of empty. Um, but we know those kids on trail are having a blast. Okay. And so... What's the layout like? How how many people can be at the camp at a certain time, or or in in you know the Boundary Waters 
that are through the camp or at the camp itself? Like what's the average turnover or something? Yeah. Well, so it's a small camp. So you see some of these bigger, like we like to call them corporate camps. They have like, you know, hundreds of kids going through our camp. You have like maybe 40 kids, um, per session. So there's two, four week sessions, eight weeks total. Um, so at any given time you have about 40 kids around camp, um, when they're in camp and then they stagger trips. So you might be on a three day, four day or a five day trip. All right. And so when we go then into the Boundary Waters, um, there's always a, a number of guides that are going with with the groups. And are they, you know, held to the same standard of a, a maximum group size of nine, just like any other user? Or how, how does that work? Yep. So we do try to max out our trips. So we have nine people. So we usually do two guides and then seven kids mm-hmm. uh, and try to max out um, our boat limit too. So four, um, just to try to get kids canoeing and out on the water. Less kids stuffing, more kids paddling. It's kind right. of our, our motto. Yeah, nice, cool. That's a good motto. And so then uh, I mentioned you're, you know, you're on the Seagull River. That's at the end of the Gunflint Trail. Um, are you doing Quetico and BWCA trips? Yep, yep. we do like a big uh, week-long Quetico trip, usually at the end of our four-week sessions. So those kids can sign up for those trips. All right. And what do you find for the experience level that some of the camp youth show up with? I mean, do people know how to paddle canoes? They know anything about what's going on in the Boundary Waters? What's the level of experience when they show up? Uh, a lot of our experience is like zero. So a lot of kids come in from um, from down south. We get a lot of kids from Kansas because that's kind of where our recruiters are from. And so we get a lot of those kids that have no idea how to paddle a canoe or start a fire or do any of that. So our guides are teaching them kind of those basic skills. And then as we trip, uh, go on trips, they kind of learn those skills and kind of hone in on those skills as well. But it's amazing. You see, we have a senior leadership program. So those are our high school age kids. And you see those kids that have been through camp since they were six or seven. Um, and their skill level is much higher yeah, now. It's, it's a dramatic change that you see in these kids, yeah. which yeah. is really cool to see. Yeah, right on. So that kind of gets me into the next uh, phase of what I want to talk about today is this idea of how important these experiences are for creating lifelong interest in the Boundary Waters. Um, Victor, you know, I want to hear from both of you on this, but Victor, what do you hear or witness from from some of these kids as they're at the camp? They do a trip and they come out. Do you even maybe notice a change? And they say, hey, I can't wait to come back, and this was cool. Uh, what do you, what's the lo- the impact that seems to happen to the kids on the trip? Absolutely. Um, so, like, they have that love of learning. I feel like we kind of incorporate that a lot. Um, they have that love for, like, learning new skills, and they also have that companionship being with a good close-knit of guys on trail. I think that's really, really important for those kids at yeah, that age. Yeah, and, you you know, like I said, only been there for, for three years now, so you maybe haven't seen where somebody would come back after all these years, but uh, maybe from stories Ashley's dad has shared or, or just from some of the camp discussion that people do return as adults after they've done this as, as a child or a youth. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. When, uh, one of my best friends at camp, his name is Roz, um, and he was at camp from the age of six until 17 and then he took a couple of years off to do what he wanted to do, and he came back as a guide. Mm-hmm. He's been guiding with me for the last two years, and so he just like absolutely loves coming back to the place where he he grew up, essentially. Yeah, nice, cool. So it certainly made an impact on oh, him, yeah, absolutely. And, and probably plenty that have gone through the camps. Uh, Ashley, what do you think about that idea that uh, the camps, you know, and mm-hmm. not just uh, Camp Birchwood for boys, but just all the camps uh, in the Gunflint area, Ely, that do Quetico mm-hmm. Boundary Waters trips, that it creates an impression on on a young person who then fosters a lifelong passion for the wilderness. Is, yeah. Would you think that's true? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure other camps have similar kind of tenets for their, their camp goals, missions for their camps. Um, I know my grandfather's original missions were threefold. There was to have role models, which would be your counselors, would be to um, create this web of people that you know 
friends and then create an appreciation for the wilderness. That was a really big deal. Um, so I know this summer we had um, somebody come up into camp. He was maybe in his 40s, 50s, and his high school daughter came up to camp and we were looking like, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad recognized me and said, Stretch, is that you, man? Mm-hmm. And this was somebody that he had uh, been with at camp when they were really young boys and he was bringing his daughter in and he had been bringing his daughter on Boundary Water Canoe Trips every summer. Um, and he was trying to bring her back and show her like kind of where he grew up. And, um, he attributes Gunflint Wilderness Camp, now Camp Birchwood for Boys, to, um, who he is today. And he had a lot of really great stories to tell from the camp. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think these camps play a huge role in creating lifelong users for the Boundary Waters. Yeah. I would say that that story is like paramount. I mean, that's a perfect example. Yeah. And so... Let's hear a little bit more then, Ashley, too, about, you know, the impression that the Boundary Waters has made on you. You know, you're you're uh, both in your 20s and you grew up in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what what's your idea of the Boundary Waters, you know, from some of your early memories, either not even associated with the camp, but just in general, the Boundary Waters? What's yeah. it meant for you in your life? Yeah, well, gosh, I don't remember what age I was, probably early middle school when I went on my first trip with my dad. They've always been with my dad going on trips. Um and I actually, I wanted to leave halfway through my first Boundary Waters trip. We got to Gunflint Lake and we were paddling up like really strong wind. And I was just like, no, I'm done. Let's leave. Let's go home. Let's hitch a ride. And we, we went up the Gunflint Trail on our way out. And then I was so disappointed in myself. I said, no, I can do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we went back and we got all, all of our gear and we finished the trip. And I think that was like a really defining moment for me and, you know, my experience with the Boundary Waters um, because it is really trying. And we were actually talking about this the other day, how you were on a trip um, with some of our Colombian um, counselors mm-hmm. and it was just raining and it was miserable. But those sort of trips, you never want them going into it. But once you have them, they kind of forge friendships oh, yeah. and, and a lasting relationship with the wilderness. Yeah. Um, that's really important. Yeah. Nice. Cool. And, and so, Victor, you uh, grew up in, in Duluth, right? Yep. I was uh, born and raised in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. And so you've been coming up to the BWCA area for most of your life, too? Yep. Uh, my grandpa took me at a really young age, probably like three or four, and kind of just plopped me in a canoe and gave me a fishing pole. I was like, here you go. We're going to go for uh, like a two-day trip just to enjoy, and we're just going to go see what nature has for us. And so uh, my first trip was probably into uh, Hungry Jack. And I don't remember where we went exactly, uh-huh. but we, I remember coming out and being like, I'm so covered in bug bites, <laughs> but I was so happy because yeah. I was just out in nature and just enjoying my, my time. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, cool. Yeah, right on. And so what do you like to do now in, in, as a little bit older and, and not affiliated necessarily on, the, on some of the camp trips where you're guiding, but just on your own with your friends or with Ashley or whoever you might be with, you know, what do you like to do now for a three, four day trip? You still enjoy fishing? Or oh, what's I love fishing. About? Fishing is a big passion of mine. And, um, I usually like to go up into the sag and go up in the Queticos. It's usually where I like to go because the fish are get bigger the mm-hmm. higher up you go. <laughs> cool. um, but yeah, no, I definitely like to be in like the where you see less people and you see more fish, and kind of on your own. That's yeah. kind of my favorite. My favorite trips are yeah, nice. solo trips. So you go stuff. through Cache Bay up. Oh there. yeah, you ever stop and see Janice the ranger <laughs> every time? Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah, she's a big friend of ours. You know, uh, yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, so Ashley, what about um, you know some of your other experiences either with uh, your dad, maybe a favorite memory from camp or just uh more recently doesn't have to be a family trip but something that happened in the boundary waters that you like when i would want to tell somebody about what it's like in the boundary waters i would tell them this oh gosh i mean 
when I think of the Boundary Waters, it's a mixed bag as to what you're going to get when you go on a trip, right? Um, the last trip that my dad and I went on, I, I think we just did like the Alpine Loop or something, something really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember the mosquito. this was maybe two summers ago, and the mosquitoes were just biting. And I had never had to wear a mosquito net in the Boundary Waters before, but this is the first time I said, screw it, I'm going <laughs> to wear a mosquito net around my head. Because mm-hmm. you, you'd have to cook your dinner inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were inside the tent, and we had just woken up at like 3 a.m. because a whippoorwill was sitting right on our tent, singing its little song again and again and again and again. Um, and my dad took a recording of it. And just the other day, he played it for me. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that trip so fondly. It was so much fun. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of memories. Most of mine are from from the camp, though, from working and building things. Um, spent a month working on that water slide. Um, our property line, we share it with the Boundary Waters. So we're basically in the Boundary Waters. But um, yeah, all my memories are from working at camp. Yeah, yeah, cool. And I th- and of course, that's what, you know, our, our discussion is about is the camp and the impression that it can make on an individual and, and why uh, people keep coming back. And I think mm-hmm. something that's uh, emerged from our discussion here, in particular, Ashley, some of your stories are that, you know, it's not always the postcard idyllic uh, experience that you see on a you know, a website or something that's, mm-hmm. that's part of it, certainly. But there are, there's some challenges, and, it, and it's work. I mean, there's yeah. your portaging is work and setting up camp of the whole process. Is that something, Victor, that you guys uh, try to, you know, emphasize or really let them experience that hands-on, that, hey, this is, this is work to do some of this. It's fun, but there's, a, there's another aspect to it. Oh, absolutely. I feel like uh, we kind of encourage our boys to work hard, especially on the portages and, like, uh, setting up camp. That's kind of really important for us to, like, get our work done first so we can enjoy the camping part of camping. Um, so we always encourage, like, we're a, we're a one portage crew, especially <laughs> when we're on trail because no one wants to carry more than one or have to double back. Um, but, yeah, so all boys, they all work really hard. And um, they're kind of enticed by We do, like, a fire pin at the end of each week. It, yeah. So they all have toques, like mm-hmm. Voyager toques, mm-hmm. and you wear them to campfire, which we have two times per session. Um, and then you earn little awards based like for archery or rifle, riflery, and you pin them on your toque. And so he's talking about the fire pin, which it's continue. like it's a person who does goes above and beyond basically. And we, as guides, we see that this kid's been above and beyond, and like we'll award him this fire this fire pin because he works on his hard on uh, like the portages, or he's a friend before he does anything else. Yeah, nice. So it's like an incentive for them yeah. to, to work harder yeah. on a certain aspect. And he yeah. gets to light the campfire. He gets to light the campfire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is <laughs> right on. Uh, so then, while we're talking about you know everything's not always uh, so picture perfect in the Boundary Waters, uh, we don't need to get too specific. So individuals might feel you know mentioned or, or mm-hmm. be able to pinpoint it back to them or something like that. But I'm imagining that there's sometimes some some kids that maybe aren't as excited that they are maybe feeling like they got kind of talked into doing this, mm-hmm. or mom and dad said you're, you're going, and that's the end of the story. Um, how do those situations play out in the wilderness? Um, it's usually by the first week. The first week is usually the toughest for the kids because they're homesick and they're, they're not happy to be there. Um, and it's usually like right after that first trip, they come back and they are dirty and gross, but they're happy because they worked hard and they had a bunch of fun with their friends or their new friends, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just see the excitement and they're ready for the next week and they're just kind of progressing and moving forward and forgetting that they want to go home and they're just happy to be there yeah so it usually kind of just unfolds yeah it, it plays itself out mm-hmm. just by letting nature run, do its thing exactly mm-hmm. yeah nice cool so ashley then uh let's hear a little bit more you're living yeah 
at the end of the Gunflint Trail, uh, yeah. we've had uh, um, some serious snow here this winter. Yeah. And what's life like at the end of the Gunflint Trail for uh, a 26-year-old yeah. in, uh, you know, living in the wilderness, essentially? How's it going up there? It's awesome. I love it so much. Um, so where our camp is located, there's no road there. So you have to either take a snowmobile in the winter or a boat in the summer. Um, so that's an added challenge. Um, we don't really have running water up there. Um, and it's all wood stoves. So there's, it's a lot of work. It's hard work. Um, I have a blog all about it. Um, there's a lot to write about. <laughs> I yeah, mean, so. Um, so, uh, Saturday, I think the high is supposed to be like negative eight. So I'll be busy putting mm-hmm. firewood in the stove all day. But, um, I moved up from Florida. I quit my job in September, um, to move up here and just live in my cabin, which is really cool. Um, my dad built the cabin in the eighties actually with my mom and they were kind of the first people to live there. And then a lot of other people have lived there ever since. My cousins have all lived there. We've had a lot of directors live there. So it's just really cool for me to live there. It's a tiny little like 200 square foot cabin with a good view of the Seagull River and yeah. Yeah, nice. And you have Wi-Fi or broadband? I have Wi-Fi, thank goodness. (laughs) I don't have cell reception, but Mm -hmm. you don't need running water if you have Wi-Fi. Yeah, all right. Well, that's cool. And and we'll uh, share a link to your blog. And and you can can give a shout out too. Yeah, it's called An Outdoor Experience. So it's just all about the fullness of a life lived outdoors. Wow, interesting. And um, are you too able to, you know, you said no phone, but you can connect uh, almost daily or send emails and so forth? Yep. Yeah, well, he's got an iPhone, I've got an iPhone, so iMessage works. But, uh, yeah, thank goodness I have Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. 2019 rustic living. Right, super. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we've got an outhouse, but I've still got Netflix, so yeah, that's all you need, It really. evens out. <laughs> it evens out. <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, so uh, let's just, you know, conclude here with talking about um, camps and, and the impact that they can have on, on young people, and, and then it creates this uh, lifelong passion for the Boundary Waters. What's next? Do you see that anything's going to change with either how people find out about the camps, uh, who comes, or, or just anything that might change moving forward now in you know, the next five, ten years or anything like that? I think it's important as we move forward to have more of a focus on the environmental aspect. I mean, um, with the Boundary Waters being in the news so frequently, the Save the Boundary Waters campaign, um, I think gearing more towards um, have you know, in the environmental aspects could be a really good way for us to go and camps in general. Um, it seems like parents are wanting to send their kids more towards specific camps. So in four weeks, I expect my kid to come back being a basketball star or speak Mandarin or code something. Um, and we're all about selling the message that let your kid be a kid find role models, develop friendships, and develop an appreciation for the wilderness. And having the environment being an even bigger picture of that, I think is going to be more important as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Victor, what do you think about the next five to ten years, why the camp will continue to be important or, or how it might change or any, anything along those lines? Yeah, I agree a lot with that, Ashley, in that um, we just need to get kids outside. So I'm, I'm like my impression is that we spend a lot of time inside on, a, on screens, mm-hmm. and it's important that we take away those screens and kind of push kids outside. So they're being kids again. Um, I think that's really important to develop into like growing human beings, but also to develop as kind of more environmental conscious human beings as well. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, that's, I say I have Wi-Fi right now. The campers do not have Wi-Fi. Yeah. Just yeah. disclaimer. You get privileges in the winter. Uh, that, that's I cool. Do. You yeah. get a pass yeah, on that. Yeah, it definitely. is a no technology, sort no screens in camp. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, okay. And then actually, just lastly too, uh, Ashley, and, and not to get uh, too personal or, or uh, sentimental with you, but uh, yeah. 
uh, your grandfather started this camp and, and, uh, when did he pass away? Oh my gosh. I was like five when he passed away. Mm -hmm. So early nineties. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, now here in 2019, if, if he were uh, able to look down and perhaps he is, but, uh, if, if he were able to see the camp now, do you think he, he would be proud of, of what he yeah. sees at, uh, in, on a busy proud. summer day? Yeah. I think he'd be super proud, especially the direction that camp is growing. Um, but there's, there's nowhere but up to go from here. And I think he'd be really, really happy with it. Really yeah. proud. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right. I'm sure he's very proud of you for living up Thanks. there. I and, hope and, so. And, and both of you for, for the work you do at these camps. So uh, we've been speaking with Ashley Bredemus and Victor Pilon. Uh, they're both affiliated with uh, Camp Birchwood for Boys at the end of the Gunflint Trail on the Seagull River. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. we said here top of the episode you know it's may season paddling season has arrived finally we've made it i gotta tell you man you're looking i know it's been a long winter and everything but man you're looking famished you're hungry or you is you it, bit at my arm when i was just trying to throw away a wrapper sorry about that <laughs> I, I was trying to hide it i, I didn't think it was obvious <laughs> what's going on can i get you something to eat or what <laughs> well you know i've got something on my mind here uh, breakfast. Breakfast. Breakfast in the Boundary Waters. Well, it is. It's my favorite meal because it starts the day. Mm-hmm. You know, and and especially when you're burning so many calories, paddling and breaking up, breaking down camp and and getting loaded up. You know, to to get on the water. I love just putting in the calories. And actually, you know, I want to back up just a second here. You know, I moved up the Gunflint Trail uh, to get my start up in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I came across this cabin-looking place at Mid-Gunflint. And I walked in there just to see what was going on. And I walked into a room where the walls were lined with food. And... What I'm thinking about when I hear you describe that is Trail Center. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's it. Okay, so... That's Trail Center. What I was thinking about when we're describing our breakfast, you know, and and you and I were not big lunch eaters when we're on our canoe trips. No, it's like a bar mm -hmm. when you get famished. But I've seen you eat camp chow for breakfast, and I've seen you go to town. (laughs) It's pretty barbaric at times. But you like, uh, I've seen you eat the uh, the hash browns and wild mushrooms meal from Camp Chow, and it's, I mean, you've, it's like your fuel for the day. It's what gets you up out of the bed, and it's what keeps you fueled for the day. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really like, uh, if you haven't met Sarah, Sarah's the sort of, uh, the brainchild behind Camp Chow, and uh, the, the breakfast that they put out, I mean, there's such a variety. I love anything with wild mushrooms. And they have especially this wild mushroom breakfast, and uh, it's got potatoes, eggs, wild mushrooms, and it's just perfect for packing in the calories for the day. Uh, I And, you know, you can top it off with some fresh lake trout, as you and I have done a few times in the past, uh, just to add a little diversity to it. But it, Camp Chow, it just has everything you need in a bag. Dude, how about the time we were ice fishing? Uh, this was just this past winter, actually, and... 
I woke you up with that trout slapping around. and Oh, yeah. What a way to wake up. I mean, coming from a slumber into opening my eyes, emerging from the sleeping bag and seeing a lake trout flopping on the ice. And we cooked that up in the, in the ice shack uh, with some camp chow. You can check out all the camp chow breakfasts, all the meals online. It's freeze-dried uh, meals for canoe country. It's been a big hit at some of the expos we've attended. And uh, check it out, campchow.org, or swing into Trail Center up the Gunflint Trail. It's also available at a number of uh, re- you know outfitter shops throughout the region. So, uh, well, Camp Chow. When you stop in, make sure to tell Sarah that you heard about it on the podcast. Yeah, cool. All right, man. Well, let's talk, uh, speaking of lake trout. Fly fishing. fishing. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, who thought fly fishing in the boundary waters? You know, Matthew, I went to the University of Montana, Missoula, right? And then I moved to Central Oregon, fly fishing meccas. I mean, people come from all over the world to fish there. You know where my favorite place to fly fish is? Up the Gunflint, in the boundary waters, with a fly rod for smallmouth bass, top water. It's unbelievable. Boy, I bet watching that that fly get hit Ugh. hard don't even bring it up i can't handle all right, it all right, all right well you know what let's hear what jeremy has to say about this i am pleased to welcome jeremy kershaw to the boundary waters podcast jeremy is currently resides in duluth minnesota Uh, may best be known for his cycling career and as a race organizer, much lesser known potentially for his career as a Boundary Waters guide um, through Paragus. So Jeremy, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I always like to talk about this area and um, anything cycling and fishing related is is great. Well, unfortunately, you can't cycle in the Boundary Waters, so we're going to have to focus (laughs) on the fishing today. That's that's good. That's okay. I'm I'm still okay with that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, this is a good time to start talking about it. Um, as spring tries to make an appearance here in the Northland. Indeed, it's definitely coming quick. Uh, Jeremy, for our listeners who may not know who you are, could you um, tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I've uh, been living in Minnesota since about 1997 and got uh, reacquainted with my love of the Boundary Waters um, after college and and securing uh, some work in Ely, Minnesota with Outward Bound and then into uh, co-managing the outfitting department at Paragus Northwoods Company in Ely. And then that would be a summertime gig. And then in the winter, I was running and guiding uh, sled dogs with uh, Wintergreen Lodge. And did that for about six or seven years, um, and then continued to want to live in the Northland, and we uh, moved to Duluth, which was, as um, we didn't want to be too far away from Ely and, and Grand Marais and the Arrowhead, so it's been a good compromise. Um, I'm an RN uh, at, the, at a local hospital here in Duluth, and then also, like you said, manage the cycling events on the North Shore so it's a it's a real mixed bag of a lot of my passions of being outside and riding and, and canoeing and fishing and um, I'm glad I get to be so close to the boundary waters. So that's um, and uh, my real passion as I get older is is the idea of helping people to uh, um, experience 
the the area and know how um, how many different you know um, uses uh, there can be from again from paddling to cycling to fishing to hiking anything like that is is, is all good. I think that is why you're a, a very special guest to have on the show today. And that whole idea of um, introducing this beautiful region to uh, people who may may have never been here before or may want to learn how to expand those experiences um, is exactly what we want to talk about today. And we, you know, we have this unique opportunity to talk as as we move into fishing opener um, to talk about a really unique way of fishing. So, Jeremy, when I think of something like fly fishing, I picture, at least for Minnesota and um, northern Minnesota, I picture the North Shore, I picture um, streams and the rivers that are cascading down to Lake Superior. Um, I don't think of something, I don't think of the boundary waters. Um, that's not what comes to mind. Um, and and a lot of people listening here have probably also never even considered that as an option, or maybe even never tried fly fishing at all. Um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about how you started getting into that, so to connect with kind of what other people may experience. Yeah, I, it's interesting um, how uh, the, you know the various types of fishing that you can do up on the North Shore. I'm still learning. You know, there's a, probably a lifetime of of places to fish on the North shore and, and styles of fishing from, um, fly fishing or bait fishing, the, the rivers that come into the lake, uh, all the way to the, you know, the various types of fish you can, and kind of look for in the boundary waters. I, um, I fly fish since I was a kid, uh, and, and just hitting, you know, and just looking for bluegills and, and largemouth bass and the farm ponds where I grew up and, uh, I got a, kind of my first taste for it there and have done some fishing, fly fishing out west as well. And when I started to live in Ely, I, one of my coworkers was just mad about fly fishing. And he got me going into the idea of like there are pockets of time uh, in Boundary Waters Lakes where it can be as effective as, as any other type of fishing. And the funny thing about fly fishing is that it's when it's really good, it is just graceful. It's it's beautiful. It's it's magical way to fish. When it's bad, you wonder why you even considered fishing in the first <laughs> place. I mean, because it's if you're new to fly fishing, it is a ridiculous way to cast, and it is sometimes like I can't believe that this is actually you know something people want to do. But as you get better at it, as you get the skill down, as you um, practice your cast, as you just kind of get your head around the whole concept of what fly fishing is and a little bit of added work, there's, I think, we you realize that there's a couple, there's some time frames uh, throughout the warm, you know, during the spring particularly, where it can be just a, a great way to fly, or a great way to catch fish in the boundary waters. And so... Um, as I started to guide and, and get people as an outfitter into the boundary waters, um, we, we, you know, you know, we, we would recommend it to certain, to certain customers. I'm like, yeah, there's, there are windows of time where you could catch Northern Pike, Lake Trout, Walleye and Smallmouth Bass all almost on one rod and, in, you know, in, and have that, that opportunity. And just as you would with spin cast or anything like that, um, 
And it, it doesn't go all along, you know, all year long, but, uh, as most, as you know, the, the fishing changes, of course, um, no matter what style you're using to, to try to catch them, but boy, <clears throat> for a couple of weeks there, fly fishing is really a, a viable option to, um, to look for fish in the boundary waters. And, um, it, it, it does have its challenges for sure. It, um, you know, as, Fishing from a canoe is, uh, if you haven't done it before, it's, it's really different than fishing from a 18 foot lund. You know, it, it helps to have a, a bow or a stern paddler that is knowledgeable and can kind of keep a canoe in position. Um, uh, weather is of course fickle. Um, but what's really great is that unlike stream fishing or creek fishing, where you're often on the North shore limited by brush and alders and really tight fishing quarters, on the lakes, you, you have the opportunity to, you know, really present these, these longer casts. And, um, and again, with the help of a, a paddler or a partner in the canoe, um, really present your fly in a, in a, in a good sort of way without the, the trees overhanging and, and that type of thing. So it, it, it does make sense. And it, it, it really can be an awesome way to catch fish um, at certain times of the year. So, Jeremy, I, I'm going to jump in here. First of all, full disclosure um, I cast my first fly about a week ago. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, after about five minutes, it felt like my arm was going to fall off. <laughs> and, and so just, you know, since I have the unique opportunity of being almost a complete beginner, I'm going to ask you, for you to clarify a few things. So you're talking about presenting a fly. You're talking about tree cover. Can you just back up a little bit for a second and explain... Um, kind of paint the picture of, of how fly fishing works and and what is unique to that that's going to be so important for this window of time that you're describing? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so fly fishing in general, uh, as people maybe picture it, and sometimes the river runs through it, and, and that type of idea of presenting this right, delicate right. little fly on these you know beautiful Montana rivers or I mean, it's still a, it's, a, it's still a great image up up here, and with the the type of fish, trout are definitely predators, of course. But um, we have the ability to be a little less delicate, which is great. So the tackle and the hardware, as far as the the the, the weight or the heaviness of the rod, and also the size of the flies that we're using, are um, you don't have to be, you know, as as precise or as um, well, let's just say you can get away with a little bit more air in this type of fishing. As anyone who's ever fished for Northern Pike will attest, they will sometimes, you know, hit right by the boat. They're not a very finicky fish at times, mm-hmm. you know, and nor mm-hmm. are bass for that matter. It's like they're they're really top predators almost in 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 their habitats, and they don't necessarily care about the prettiest cast, which is great, particularly for first time fly fishing. Nice. Good. So. Um, that's one of the positives. This is in some ways a pretty safe way to learn fly fishing in that, um, there are types of fly fishing, again, particularly out West where the fish are so wary, so cautious that you have to just be surgical in your presentation. And that has its ups, you know, that has, that can be really satisfying if you get it all dialed in and you present this perfect, you know, cast and the perfect fly in the perfect way. But it can also be maddening, you know, and, and kind of uh, like, again, why is anyone doing this? So up in the boundary waters, I think it's a good 
place to practice casts, like I said, on the lake. Um, I think you stand a higher chance of catching fish by a fly on in a lake situation like this than you would in sometimes more finicky stream situations uh, um, that can be, you know, uh, uh, that can be present. So, um, yeah, there's, um, and the flies themselves are, are bigger than what uh, most people are associate with trout fly fishing. So um, your casts probably are not going to be as, um, it, it's tougher to cast a bigger fly, but it also, it may not look as graceful as some of the, you know, again, the ideas that people might have of fly casting, but you get it out there and you bring it in and um, yeah, we can talk more about it. It's it, it, a little bit more forgiveness uh, in this style of fly fishing. So this idea of fly fishing, you know, it's really oriented around the cast and the the process of, of sort of building a momentum with the fly on the end of the line and getting it out and landing it on the water to create this perception of, of a, a living insect landing on the water, enticing uh, the predator fish to come after it. And from my little knowledge, I know you, you, you present it, as you said, and then you kind of work it back towards you. And the whole idea is creating this realistic presentation that will entice a bite. Do I have that that's, correct? That's that's totally correct. Um, the probably the biggest difference is, is in the mode of transportation of getting that lure to the to the water. And so coming from the fly fishing tradition of of false casting of drying off a fly. Uh, with some false casts, so to speak, practice or like casts that are not meant to hit the water. You're kind of drying the fly out so that it will alight and, and stay on top of the surface of the water when you do present your final cast. This style of fishing often is the, the type of lure, the type of bait that you're presenting is often not a uh, terrestrial, like a, a grasshopper or a bug, it's more bait fish or leech or um, aquatic um, bait fish, so to speak, that the that the predator would be interested in. So, um, you, in essence, you 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 can certainly do some false casting, but your idea is to get that lure to just like spin casting or any other type of bait, um, you know, hard non-fly fishing um, tackle you want to present that lure as close to your target, whatever it is, a structure or weed bed or log as possible in a, in a way that's going to present the highest chance of, of a, a fish seeing it, you know, and that's across the board for fishing. You know, it just, one of the biggest differences again, is just the way in which you're casting, to be honest. Um, the flies that are used are um, again, not very delicate in their, in their size. It can, be sometimes the length of a regular, you know, number three MEP spinner or something like that, or a, a medium sized spoon, but their weight is much lighter. And so you have to rely somewhat on your line. And that's the other odd thing about fly fishing is that the style of the line that's used is helps propel these very light flies, even some of the bigger streamers to where you want to cast, um, or to where you want them to land. So, um, Again, the tradition of fly fishing is is very is unique and, and seemingly 
it's a it's it's odd compared to just using a regular bait casting reel or a spin casting reel where you just cast once, you know. Um, so once you get your head around the tradition of fly fishing and practice and kind of understand that it's just a different style of presentation, the the goal and the process of bringing that lure to the boat are really very similar to any other style of fishing. Um, the one difference is that it's mainly surface fishing um, or subsurface, maybe within a foot or so. Uh, so you're not going to be jig fishing. You're not going to be along the bottom of the you know uh, the, the lake as you would think of walleye fishing, that type of thing. This is really very visual style of fishing too, which is I think really one of the more exciting parts about it is that um, kind of who doesn't like watching the fish hit the the lures you're bringing it in. Oh yeah. I mean, it can be, I mean, just heart-stopping, you know, as any good fishing is like that, where you can really watch what's happening. Um, and that's probably one of my favorite parts of fly fishing in that it's um, very visual as you're bringing that lure in. As I hear you describe, you know, what goes into this new, this this different technique and this different concept, um, I think my immediate reaction is, you know, this is pretty complex and there's a little bit of a high learning curve but what better place to get out and practice than a a boundary waters lake where you've got lots of spaciousness you have this wide open um, playing field and the payoff has the potential to be really exciting with this visual style of fishing and and i if i'm understanding this correctly the potential for any number of varieties of fish to hit yeah i i think that's i think that's true without a doubt again this goes back to kind of the tradition of fly fishing it's it's unique and it isn't for everyone and not to be exclusive about it just some people are going to be way smarter than i am and be like hey i can do this a much easier way if you're not one of those people and you really want to explore a kind of a rich tradition of fishing a style of um, fishing that's you know still very vibrant and and, and, you know, present today, but isn't very, um, it's somewhat new to the Boundary Waters area, in essence. Um, uh, it, once you kind of get used to that and you want to explore something that's kind of new, again, I think the Boundary Waters is a really great place to learn because of that somewhat um, more forgiving um, uh, chance, more forgiving, uh, how do you say it, uh, nature of fly fishing up here where you don't have to be you don't have to be as delicate as you would maybe in other uh western scenarios um on smaller streams and yes you have the opportunity to catch some really decent sized fish we're not talking six ounce rookies you know we're talking four pound you know smallmouth bass or you know any size northern and if you're time it right you could even find lake trout as well so the fish that you're you're going to really it'll be a fun you know it'll be a fun catch and again that visual component of it is uh just kind of adds to it so if you have always wanted to try fly fishing and but we're kind of intimidated by by stream fishing uh i think fishing in the on lakes situations like this particularly again in a couple um certain time frames uh of the year can be a really great way to learn so in that way I think that's what makes the Boundary Waters a great place for fly fishing um, when you come into it with those kind of parameters. 
I mean, yeah, not to mention that the fact it's already a beautiful place and you're probably already going to be out there anyways. And you can always take, uh, you know, multiple rods with you. Yeah. Um, so you can mess around and see how it goes and also go back to yep. what you know. Yep. Uh, as I, I um, yeah, I certainly bring, you know, I, I, I bring too much tackle, of course, as a lot of fishermen do. But I would bring, if I were to go out, uh, again, uh, we can talk about when to do this, but I would... Um, I would probably bring three different rods, which is not totally out of the question. You know, um, a lot of people do that for different styles of fishing. And if you're, if the fly fishing, um, is proves to be too tough or too frustrating, or it's too windy there, um, you know, you can always go back to a more, uh, sort of speak traditional or, you know, an alternative way to get, you know, a lure out there and try to catch something. So yeah, I, I just think it's a really fun option. Uh, and it's challenging, but I think it's, it's very worthwhile to try well, you're you're convincing me, that's for sure, Jeremy. Uh, one practical question comes to my mind before we get into um, the window of time for that's ideal for this. And that question, t- for me, from a beginner's perspective, is, you know, do I start? I mean, is it best to start in the canoe, um, a solo canoe, or should I go out like with a paddle buddy who's going to be able to support my, you know, learning process, or should I start on the shore of my campsite in a big open space? Do you have a recommendation there for what would be easiest? Yeah, well, I, I certainly think there's a progression. So I remember practice casting in my yard at home with just uh, a small fly with the barb cut off, and um, and and you could go to a park or do something like that. I really think it would pay off doing some dry land training in essence of practicing basic cast, trying to cast to a target, uh, with no water, just on, you know, in a park or someplace safe where you're not going to, uh, foul up a tree or, or, you know, or hook little uh, junior hook your or daughter by you. accident. You know? <laughs> um, but then moving on to a water scenario, I think, uh, by all means, um, start off easy and maybe, uh, Try to go out with a partner, um, maybe in the evening or in the morning when it's calm and where you're not fighting wind and you try to set yourself up for success as much as you can right off the bat and, and kind of put it into your arsenal of, of styles that you might use. So like, okay, I'm not going to fly fish the whole time, but I'm going to bring it and I'm going to have a partner that's going to be patient enough to (laughs) try to control the canoe while I'm out there at these certain hours of the day. And, um, and, uh, and then hit it, you know, really try to make the the experience as good as it can. Um, and then once you get more comfortable with casting, um, more comfortable with the kind of the concept, you you know, you could go for it and just have that, that fly rod at the ready and be kind of your main rod. Um, again, I think solo paddling would be, um, it's certainly doable. Um, but, because of just boat control in general, you know, canoe control and fishing is, it's a kind of an art form as well. So that would, I think, add to the challenge to be solo. Uh, So that's how I would probably progress of, you know, dry practice uh, or on land. And then um, if you can get to a dock scenario as well, that's a really great place to practice where there's, you're over the water in essence, but you have no trees behind you and that type of thing. And you can practice actually, and maybe even get lucky enough to catch something while you're practicing on the lake and then um, progress into a, into the canoe. Fantastic. Let's talk time frame, both time of year um, and, and time of day. You know, what, wh- how do you imagine the, you know, this window, this perfect window where it, 
you can really have that maximum effect? I really focus my fly fishing in late May uh, and then into the first couple of weeks of June. Um, and you might think, well, that's a pretty limited time. And I, I think there are opportunities after that. But those three to four weeks there probably present the the most bang for your buck as, uh, the, as fly fishing as an effective way to catch fish. Um, primarily due to the fact that um, a lot of the species are, are still fairly shallow and they're obviously post-spawn and um, or, or very close to spawn, including uh, in regard to smallmouth. But you have this ability to fish fairly shallow water um, in an effective way. And as again, as we mentioned with fly fishing, it's not the best way to fish walleyes at 30 feet of water. We're looking for fish that are you know, anywhere from two feet of water to eight feet of water. And um, as weed breads start to emerge, as uh, particularly like smallmouth are fairly shallow and considering they're getting ready to spawn, um, again, you, you up your chances of uh, doing a, a rather fast style of fishing subsurface and, and running into, you know, fish that are on the bite. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like the perfect scenario. The one trick, of course, is, again, people that are used to the boundary waters, like, there's always some compromise, and that time of year is tough with bugs, and that's any fisherman would know that, boy, June can be really, you know, that's why it's tough bringing sometimes little kids that time of year. It's like, you know, the mosquitoes can be really, really tough. But the fishing is probably some of the most prime fishing of the year outside of a, a couple of their windows uh, during the warm, you know, warmer season. Uh, but, again, it has a lot to do with um, – how where fish are in relation to the depth of water and so having a, a, a higher number of uh, fish species uh, you know anywhere from 10 feet to two feet of water really again bumps up the um, the usefulness of fly fishing yeah you know last episode of the podcast was all about getting your family into the boundary waters and i feel like uh Taking your family in for a new trip and trying fly fishing for the first time, those seem like separate, maybe, <laughs> undertakings uh, that you I, should really be able to dedicate some time and space to this. Um, maybe it's yeah. really appropriate for, you know, uh, for the type of trip where you really just want to get out and learn something and be, you know, in the middle of it. Yep. I Having kids and, and loving introducing kids to the Boundary Waters and um, you want to keep the fun meter pretty high and, um, bugs are tough and there's no getting around it. And I'm all for making my, t my kids tough and getting used to things like that. But, uh, right. If you've got little kids and I, and you think that you're going to go out in the first week of June and also learn to fly cast with maybe your partner controlling the boat and your kids having no idea what you're doing and it, I would reconsider your options. So <laughs> maybe, prioritize what you want to do. It may not be fun. Uh, and, you know, maybe bring it along. And maybe if you get, if indeed you are bringing kids and, and that time of year, that yeah, you can have it and, and um, maybe consider using a select windows. But if you are going out on kind of a dedicated fishing trip and where the, you know, the, the priority is to get as much fishing time in as possible, um, then yeah, I, again, I would look strongly at that late May and early June. Um, it's also obviously a beautiful time to be up. Um, I think late spring is one of my favorite times in the boundary waters with the aspens, um, blooming out and it's just, it, it's great. And the bugs may not be so bad yet, 
but uh, yeah, that's that's where I'd really focus um, first as far as the time of the year. Wonderful. I want to go back to one other question uh, before we take a moment to hear some of your personal stories. And that question is uh, selecting the appropriate fly for this style of fly fishing. And I think you had kind of touched on that earlier, but you're going to go with a, a little, it sounds like a little bit of a different um, fly for maybe fishing in the boundary waters. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. So um, as any other sport and fishing is no better, you can spend $9 million on a rod if you want, and you can have probably 14 different rods for one style of fish. Fly fishing also has options, and if you're new to it, you'll notice one thing right off the bat is that the rods are in weights, um, like WT, or like a 5-weight, a 6-weight, a 7-weight, all the way up to you know 12-weight, 11-weight rods. So the lower the number of weighted rod, the, the finer it is, kind of the lighter it is. Um, think really small brookies for like a 3-weight all the way to saltwater fishing into the 10 and 11 weight where you can fish muskie or, you know, bigger saltwater species. If I were to bring just one fly rod, which is really what I think I would do starting out, it would be a seven weight rod, which is kind of the standard for smallmouth fishing, but it can handle um, uh, bigger fish as well, including Northern Pike. And when I say handle, a lot of the weight of the rod corresponds to the size of the fly that you need to be throwing. So um, if you were like, well, what rate rod should I do? I would go with a seven weight rod. Most of them will be between eight and a half and nine and a half feet long. I'd say somewhere in that nine foot range would be perfect um, to, again, one choice. And the the flies that you're going to be using um, in that time of year, again, I love pike fishing. So we'll use uh, streamers, which often look a lot like any other longer spinner that you might throw. It's a lot of tail, basically. You know, it's a lot of flashy or brightly colored rabbit furs, one thing that they use, or marabou um, feathers, something really gaudy looking, but, you know, that mm. is typical for pike. And they're often, you know, the streamers are often three to five inches long, which can be a little bit bulky to cast with a fly rod, but Again, um, the heavier weight rod you have, the easier it would be to cast. Where smallmouth fishing, um, slightly smaller uh, flies, but we'll use topwater uh, often as kind of these poppers or these things that ride on top of the water, or smaller streamers um, that might imitate minnows or crayfish patterns. Um, as people that have fished for bass or pike know, and, and, and walleye too, sometimes you, you feel like you could throw your sock out there, and if you, if you brought it in a certain way, you'd catch something. I mean, they're just ridiculously aggressive. So anything flashy and anything that might have a little white or red or yellow or, or black in it, you know, uh, could be effective. Um, so that's um, the, you know, the... The two species that I think most for fly fishing that time of year would be smallmouth and pike. The seven weight is a really great, almost a perfect weight rod, in my opinion, for smallmouth fishing. It might be slightly light for pike, but if you're, unless you're looking for trophy-sized pike, um, that weight rod will, will handle uh, both the fly and also, in my opinion, any size you know pike that you would get. Um, so that's. And then when you talk, if you're outfitting yourself for the first time, the line is the other component, and you have lots of different options, again, for brands. But 
you're looking for what's called kind of a weight forward line or basically a dry fishing line, in my opinion, where um, it, the line will shoot out fairly easy. It generally will float. It, it usually won't sink. Um, and so you can fish both uh, a topwater fly for smallmouth, but also you could use a floating line for those streamers for pike that, that you will obviously run a little bit below the surface. Um, the fly will naturally sink a little bit. Um, so that is kind of a compromise, of course, in fishing and, and photography and bikes, there's always compromises. That would be my compromise setup for those style of fish that you, mo- you know, most run into uh, that time of year. Great advice. And, you know, you covered all the necessary nuts and bolts, the rod, the line, the flies, and a really great middle-of-the-road setup. And I think that's exactly what uh, people will be looking for if they um, want to give this a try. So hopefully our listeners find that interesting. And, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here hearing you talk, Jeremy, about all of you know, all this stuff that you've learned over the years. And you obviously you know, have accumulated kind of a wealth of knowledge. And I assume that along with that knowledge, you've accumulated a wealth of really memorable experiences. Um, when you're talking about this and you're talking, you know, reflecting on your time in the boundary waters, is there an experience, a really memorable experience that comes up for you that you could share with us? You know, I have to say, um, so getting back to a story that really sticks in my mind, um, was I had the opportunity to, to co-guide a, um, a show, a, a PBS fishing show, which is not the first thing you think of about PBS, no. uh, public broadcast. And, <laughs> but it was a, a gentleman, uh, a host, a fishing host, and his cameraman came out from a New York-affiliated PBS uh, station. And he'd never been to Minnesota, and I don't, I don't think he'd been to Minnesota. He'd certainly never been to Quetico or Boundary Waters. And he'd never really done the style of fishing, which was canoe camping, uh, as most people imagine, Boundary Waters style. And so um, it was uh, myself and my um, uh, co-manager at the time who was mad about fly fishing and, and just he even was more fanatic than I was. But we, we brought out these um, we brought up the host and his, and his cameraman back Back then, this guy was carrying around a whole, and, you know, I was part kind of Sherpa. I was carrying, my job was to get the cameraman into a position that was, uh, you know, would provide good angles of, you know, of the cinematography needed for the show. And it was also to, you know, help haul all the camera gear and all the batteries and everything that needed to to be brought on a trip. Um, But what happened is that our excitement for that style of camping and that style of fishing, um, really, really, I think, was infectious. And to see this guy from New York, who had, who had, had a lot of fishing exposure and, and been outside quite a bit, but to experience the style of um, camping and the style of travel in the Boundary Waters, it's so unique to anywhere really in the world, frankly, where you're paddling lakes, you're um, portaging your gear, you know, over these paths that have been there for many, many, many years, you know, and then discovering this new lake and realize, and trying to figure out the best style of fishing. And uh, is this a smallmouth lake or is it a pike lake? Or maybe this is where we can fish for walleye and what style rod to use. And then never really knowing exactly what the weather would bring and what style and, you know, even how good the fishing would be. Um, but this, this trip, um, we lucked into, I think we caught walleye on the fly. We caught pike. 
We caught smallmouth, and I think we even stumbled into a lake trout as well. Grand and slam. It was all kind of a mixed bag, and we really didn't know what to expect from lake to lake, which is kind of the beauty of the boundary waters, particularly if you're on a new route. You're like, boy, you, you come out of that portage, and you view the lake for the first time, and you're like, wow, this is not what I expected, either kind of good or bad, you know, and then adapting your style of fishing and, and your style of travel to, you know, whatever the lake presented itself with. And so to, to, to share that with these people that had never really experienced that style of fishing before, let alone that style of camping or travel before was really, really great. And I remember by the, the fifth day we were heading in and, and all of us wanted to just hit shore, resupply and go right back out, which was a, about as good of experience of a trip as you can have when, you know, you're dying to go out again as soon as you get back in. And uh, and we caught a lot of fish. Of, um, and we had some tough fishing, too. It wasn't always great. And that's that's the Boundary Waters as well, you know. Um, no place is perfect that way. But uh, to mix in fly fishing and to, you know, to have that opportunity to also try to help a cameraman uh get the angles of shots and and was really a new twist on uh that style of of camping um and then to watch the final cut of it as well was really entertaining you know because it was kind of embarrassing but it was also really cool i'm like hey i tried you know i helped get that cameraman in that in that shot to get you know this perfect angle of of that bass hitting the you know the fly and stuff was so that that stands out as one of my one of the more fun boundary water experiences i had and again we did a lot of fly fishing that trip and um, it was, uh, it was, yeah, that stuck out. That was a good one. Jeremy, I, I can't think of a better reflection to wrap this up. Uh, the whole idea of taking fishing and the way that the boundary waters, Quetico, the way that that setting sets you up for adventure after adventure and discovery after discovery, like that's what draws us all back whether right. we're fishing or whether we're with our family or whether we're just out with friends, that's the magic. Yeah. And as I get older and, and I try to bring this to my cycling business and my, my other things, it's a really about the experience of just being out and, and enjoying where you're at. And, and yes, it can be frustrating at times. And yes, there can be a lot of bugs and all that. And I used to joke as an outfitter, we'd get people come back and they're like, Oh my God, it was a tough trip. You could see it on their faces. And within two weeks, they're booking their next trip, you know, for the next year because they step back to real life or, you know, city life. And you're like, God, those bugs were kind of not that bad. And the fishing was pretty good. And um, just that that sense of discovery that you have while fishing or, or not, you know, doing whatever paddling in the boundary wires is one of the best features of it, you know, and that's why it's so important to have. And you can throw some fishing in there. That's even better. Yeah, and especially something new like fly yeah, fishing. exactly. Jeremy, I want to thank you so very much for taking the time to share your knowledge, to share your experiences um, with our listeners. You know, we've had the, the pleasure of being able to learn that people are listening to this podcast, you know, not only all over the country, but there are several international listeners as well. And I don't know if they've been to the Boundary Waters or if they're dreaming of coming someday, but I think you just gave a whole nother reason to get out there and try something new. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, that's great. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's, it's always good talking about uh, canoe tripping and fishing and, um, and sharing how special this part of the world is. Uh, so I, I hope, um, yeah, I, I hope to get out there soon and uh, maybe we'll see you on the water. 
I look forward to it. Uh, you may find Jeremy out uh, in a canoe or out on his uh, bicycle traveling the roads less traveled. Um, wherever you may see him, make sure to thank him for his time on the podcast. And we'll see you again soon. That's great. Thanks. Take care. Matthew. That's what we heard. Fly fishing, boundary waters. We. This has been a great episode. It's gotten me so excited. I can't even believe uh, that I made it. If it wasn't for that captivating interview with Jeremy, I probably already would have been out there fishing. Soon it shall happen. And that is our intro into spring here. Episode 17. As always, so much uh, just a pleasure to be here talking boundary waters with you, Matthew. want to thank uh, Victor Pilon, Ashley Bredemus from Camp Birchwood for Boys for their insight into camps and how that gets people introduced to the Boundary Waters and uh, also, of course, Jeremy Kershaw there for his thoughts on fly fishing. And want to thank today's sponsors, Camp Chow off the Gunflint Trail, Sarah Hamilton, as well as the Ely Outfitting Company. I bet they're getting busy over there on the west end of the Boundary Waters. And when are you going out? You know, I haven't even asked you. When's your, what are you up to? When's your first trip, man? Uh, I plan on being, being out this weekend, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I actually am, uh, putting together a little solo weekend trip, uh, just for myself, just to sort of ground into the season, spend some time alone, listen to the loons, um, and really just remind myself what I love about being in the boundary waters. You know, I'm always a little touchy feely this time of year, so, uh like to wax and wane about the the beauty and magic of the woods uh so i'll probably have more to say when i return excellent i look forward to that and hopefully you'll have something to eat out there so the next time i try to throw away an empty granola bar wrapper you don't uh you know suddenly lunge at my arm again i apologize for those teeth marks (laughs) hey but a big thanks to all of our listeners we really appreciate the feedback you're sending us the emails the support uh keep it coming Please do BWCA podcast at gmail.com. That's how you can reach us directly. BWCA podcast at gmail.com. And stay tuned. We have some amazing stuff coming up this summer. Uh, some really unique interviews that I think are going to touch the hearts and minds of our listeners as usual. And, uh, I'm, I'm just elated that it's all begun. And if you want to find out some extra information about the podcast, some videos, uh, extra audio, we're going to be really ramping that up here now that the season is open. Patreon, that's where the podcast is also shared. Uh, Patreon.com, just type in WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast into Google or however you want to search or just go right to Patreon and you'll find it there. It's more audio, more video. You get directly involved. We've got members, uh, patrons that are signing on. It's it's ramping up under its own momentum. So uh, hop on there and you can check that out too. So, Mr. Matthew Baxley, until next time, I'm Joe Fredericks, and I will see you in the Boundary Waters. Is that your loon? That's yeah, so bad. <laughs> I just sing when I paddle through, feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. 
Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear 'em pounding, you can hear 'em roar. Rule me, rock me in my dreams. You can rule me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance. I play the fool if I got the chance. All around the campfire light. All around the campfire light. All around, all around, all around the campfire light.